Welcome to Four Quarter Lives. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and I'm exploring how longer lives impact everything, from careers and relationships to the very shape of our lives. Truth is, you're likely to live a lot longer than you think. I talk with a wide range of experts and academics, as well as individuals designing and redesigning their own third quarters, the years from 50 to 75. Instead of recreation, they're thinking recreation. What can we learn from their pioneering roadmaps through life? Bernard Franklin is an example of how programs like Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative are a gift of precious time to review where we are, to reconsider how our skills and experience can best be used, and to recharge batteries after intense and at times bruising careers and lives. Bernard grew up poor and African-American in Alabama. His community struggles with stable fatherhood, as well as his own, led him first to the Carter White House, then to the National Center for Fathering, and on to higher education. Midlife threw him one of those curveballs which made fatherhood a very personal pillar of his own third quarter. He came to Harvard frustrated with higher education's continuing failure to be the great equalizer in society, particularly for young men of color. He's on course to do something about it. Bernard, I'm going to let you introduce yourself throughout the next half hour or so, but I always love to start at the beginning. So I'm going to ask you to tell me who you were at birth, where were you born, to whom were you born, and what was already programmed into you? Wow, powerful, powerful. So I was born in Colored People's Hospital in a African-American, Native American community in Oklahoma. Okmulgee is the name of the little country city. My parents were living in the country. They were sharecroppers. They picked cotton. And my mom did not want to have me in the country. I'm the oldest and she wanted to get out of the dirt in the country. So they went into the city and to the Colored People's Hospital. And that's what it was called, the Colored People's Hospital? Seriously, that was on the hospital. Yes, I have it on my birth certificate. You asked the question, what was in my DNA? And my DNA was, I'm inadequate, I'm not equal. All those terms that said that colored people had to have separate facilities. I've asked myself even recently, what was that impact? Because I think it's too simple for us to just throw away some of what life gives us. I think we have to stop and say, okay, what was the impact of being born in a separate hospital? And did that define me? I was only born there. We stayed for a couple of years. And then my dad, like many Southern African-Americans, decided to move to Kansas, Wichita, Kansas specifically. So African-Americans from across the South, Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, came to Kansas because Kansas in the 50s was the air capital manufacturer of the world. Beach, Boeing, Learjet, Cessna were all there. And so folks were flooding there to get those aircraft manufacturing jobs. My dad didn't make it. He ended up at the post office. And so that's where he stayed for his 30-year career, one job at the post office. I'm the oldest of seven. We lived in a pretty modest home. My mom did not work until later, until most of the babies were born. And then she was a domestic. 
meaning she cleaned homes of wealthy Caucasian women. That's pretty much, let's say, up to my high school years. That's quite an imprint. Yes, very much. So describe just the tone of the home. Happy, sad, problematic, the world's problems Uh, outside the door or inside the door? Because my dad grew up picking cotton, and as he described it, and I have to go with that, the landowners were so mean and so vicious. My dad carried a lot of that anger and resentment unprocessed into his adult life. And so he was an angry man, a frustrated man, and then a man who went to the post office. And my dad's brilliant, but he could never pass the exam to get promoted. And so every time he failed the exam, he came home with even more anger and bitterness. And so we had to live with that. My mom was just the opposite. Mom kept everything more or less on an even till until dad got home. And then when dad got home, the atmosphere changed. It was, though, during the period of Dr. King, we were a fairly religious family. And about the only thing we could watch was anything King-related. So if we knew, if my dad knew that Martin Luther King was going to be delivering a speech, we were all there. The other piece that we did observe or watch was if the Supremes were on a TV show known here as Ed Sullivan Show, we were going to watch that as well. Really oriented towards the African-American experience in a way of uplifting my mom and my dad's children so that we saw characters and people who were depicted in a more positive position, on positive light than perhaps how my dad saw himself or how my mom saw herself cleaning homes. So let's skip to the end of that first quarter. Who had you become? I was influenced by all that. I had connected with the legacy of Martin Luther King. He died the day before my birthday. I was 16. I think when you are poor, it's easy to attach yourself to things that are far away, but may represent some element or some part of your culture or who you are. And so that birth date and that attachment stayed with me, and I carried it into the end of my first quarter, the beginning of second. My brother was Martin Luther King III's roommate at Morehouse College in Atlanta. And so you begin to believe there's a thread here. There's something that's being knitted that I am a part of. And so my dad would not take my brother to Atlanta. My brother asked if I would drive. So I drive. We get there and I get to meet Martin Luther King III. And we're out in the hall having this great conversation about this is a joke. How does a country boy from Kansas get Dr. King's son as roommate? Well, sure enough, we go inside and it's Martin. Martin's greeted us. He's wonderful. He's kind. At the end of those greetings, Martin asked where I was staying. And I said, I'm at a hotel. Martin says, oh, no, no, I want you to stay with my mom, Coretta, and my younger sister, Bernice. So instead of staying a weekend, I stayed five days with Mrs. Coretta Scott King. Life changing. But that was at the end of the first quarter, at the beginning of the second quarter. But it did help define that second quarter. I traveled with Mrs. King. My brother traveled with Martin the third. But it was opening up a whole new world and a whole new perspective about life for me. What did it open and what did Q2 hold for you? What did you do? Where did you go? 
I was able to ask Mrs. King, how does a 26-year-old man lay down his life? Dr. King started the movement and his participation in the movement at 26 in Alabama. And knowing that period, he would have had to have reckoned in his mind that he or his family could have been killed at any point because he was stepping way over the line, way over the line for most Southern racist Caucasians. So I wanted to know, how does a man lay down? How does a man at 26 just give it up? And she talked about having a personal commitment, having a sense of purpose, a sense of vision that transcended the current environment. And so what she was giving me was a deep deposit that is not some framework that you study in school. It's not some leadership program that you submit to. It's a calling. It's a sense of purpose. It's a sense of vision. Sounds like King was your leadership school. He was. The Kings. They were, yes. Mrs. King got me an appointment to the Carter White House. I served in a program to help advise the Jimmy Carter White House on issues that affect the poor and the disadvantaged. So she was laying that framework. I was in the beginning of my second quarter. Things went really fast and furious. And what I saw myself becoming was more of a figure and not able to manage my trajectory, not able to really hold it. At that time, people were really looking for the next dreamer, and we're really looking for that person who could articulate. And so I was sort of on that platform, but it was going too fast. And I felt I was losing control of Bernard and losing control of my life. And so I stepped away from it at the end of President Carter's term. I didn't go on further. And it was surprising to a lot of people. But I wasn't ready to give my life up for chaos. And that's what it felt like. And people grabbing at you and pulling at you and asking you to speak here and speak there. It was out of control for at the beginning of that second phase. So what did you do instead? I stepped into a banking position. I needed to make an income. I moved my family. We were in Kansas at the time. I moved to Texas. Which family? Slightly. Who did you marry? When did you marry? I married and we moved to Texas and then on to Alabama. It was at Alabama that I started my higher education career and got my master's in counseling and behavioral studies. And that's where I saw myself making a greater impact was working at an institution where black students thought I was an enigma. I didn't sound like the Southern vernacular. They saw me as having the ability to work with whites and to live among black people. You're shaking your head. But this was strange to those people at that time. This was in the 80s. They just saw primarily African-Americans who lived in their community, worked in their community, went to their church, did all that, but not went back and forth. I provided a role model. You became a bit of a bridge. You dumped the money stuff and built a bridge instead. That became what I said was my life's gift, was how do I pull people out of broken perceptions about themselves and systems, but how do I, as you say, build a bridge so that young African-American kids could begin to see themselves as crossing that bridge into other opportunities. And I said, this is it. This is my calling. And so I stayed in higher ed worked at four or five other institutions, 
Different universities, colleges? Yeah, different Where are universities. we in the geography of the U.S.? Did you stay in Alabama? Did you move around? I stayed in Alabama for eight years. And then I went to a small private college in Orlando, Rollins College suburb area, and then came back to my undergraduate, Kansas State University, finished my PhD there in the 90s, still in the second quarter, and then went to work for a nonprofit. What was the PhD in? Why did you do that? And then then what nonprofit did you move to? Counseling and behavioral studies again and family studies, PhD. And then I left in 96 to go to the National Center for Fathering. It's an organization that helps men be better fathers. At that time, and pretty much consistent, I was vice president and urban director. At that time, we knew 91% of urban African-American boys were going to bed at night without their biological father present. And so having the background that I had with the King family, I came on to try to develop a movement of African-American fatherhood. And I tried to get that done working with the names of Jesse Jackson and many others. But it was almost as if I was taking a teacup to the middle of the ocean. Men who don't deal with their own pain and their own issues can't develop a movement. And so I could dad, I guess. Yes. I couldn't get these men to develop a movement because they had their own father wound. And if they weren't willing to deal with their father wound, then how are you going to inspire other men to deal with theirs? And so I left there, went to work for an NFL football team. How old are we now? When are we switching? We're still in the second quarter. Okay, so from fathers to football, there's a link, I can see it. Well, what carved out of it was it was clear from my master's and PhD work that my life's call was to work with men. Having lived with my dad, I made a commitment that I wasn't going to be angry like my dad. I wasn't going to be the kind of figure that lorded over his wife and his children. I wasn't going to do that. So I begun my own work to create a more healthy man. And that's just how my adult in the first quarter, second quarter went. I continued that. And so it appears to me when one has made a decision that this is their life's journey, opportunities come to fulfill that. So the coach for the Kansas City Chiefs heard me speak and asked me to come on staff. And that's just literally how that happened. It wasn't I applied for it or there was an ad or whatever. He heard my presentation and asked me to come on. So I did. Still in the second quarter. At the end of the second quarter, the beginning of the third quarter, my wife is diagnosed with breast cancer. And this begins a chapter that really begins to test who I am as a father and as an individual. Because now I have four children and I have to begin the process of role modeling to them how to manage grief how to manage my life, how to work. And so in the third quarter, I became president of Urban Community College as I am parenting four children. I look back now, Aviva, and I'm not quite sure how I made it. Other than the skills that I had as a counselor, as a therapist, I was able to counsel myself, although technically you're not able to counsel yourself. 
And but how interesting that you devoted yourself to black fatherhood and then had to step into the role so completely. Exactly. And Careful that's just, what you wish for. Right. Technically, yes. And so that was pretty much third quarter has been parenting my children. And I can say, honestly, someone asked me just recently, what has been my greatest accomplishment? And I think stepping back, looking at it, to say that a third quarter man could successfully parent three sons and an adopted daughter that was in great pain because she was biracial and adopted. And she lost her birth mom, her adopted mom dies. And so in her world, in her psychological pain, she's wondering, is this man who calls himself my dad, is he going to leave me as well? And so I had to learn how to stand with her, walk with her, love her through that process. And so that gets me to this quarter that we're in now. You're only halfway through your third quarter. How old are you now as we speak? I'm 69. 69. And so parenting children wrapped pretty well, more or less. And then why ALI? Why did you come here? Is that the sort of drawing to a close that chapter? That was drawing to a close that chapter. It gave me an opportunity to begin to say, who am I? I don't believe in retirement. I feel like I still had some things to learn, but also some things to give. But I wasn't quite sure completely what it all meant. I just knew I wasn't ready to go collect seashells and little white balls. I just knew that wasn't, after all I've been through, I'm going to sit by a seashore and dig in the sand. I just couldn't fathom giving up life. It felt like, okay, I've been through this period. I've been through all these things. What's more? I'm just curious because it's unusual, your personal shift in Q3, right? Did you have a sense that your natural evolution into Q3 was kind of blasted aside by your wife's death and that had she stuck around, your Q3 would have been a different Uh, evolution? Q3 would have been in my mind, really powerful. Now, I'm not sure what national flow or flavor I would have had, but had she stood with me, there would have been some national influence because we were just in that place on that trajectory. I did mention, we had decided that after I worked at the Chiefs, that one of the pieces that was missing in the urban community was a faith context that was not driven by personality, not driven by style or money. So we planted an urban church that was intergenerational. It was a church where I never wore a suit. I never wore a tie. Our music was sort of a jazz flavor. And we collected boys from the neighborhood, really tough boys, who just wanted to come see this man not perform, but see this man give life and give substance and give purpose. Our music was really good. It wasn't sad music. Nobody came and left and felt like, oh, it was really inspiring. We were only there for about an hour, hour, 45 minutes. And we always ended our time together with a big meal. And so we had people who came probably for the meal, but really for relationships, for connection. And so I say that, because it was in that period that my wife was diagnosed. And I knew we had created a model for church, that church is not just some place where you come and share negative or judgmental lessons. 
but church can be a place where you give life. And we had created that. And so that was part of my grief. <laughs> Sounds like a model of parenting for all. Ah, uh, I hadn't thought of that. A model of parenting for all. We grew that church significantly in a short amount of time. And again, I think we had created a model. And I think that model would have probably propelled me in some way at right. my wife state. But as it were, my focus was on my children. You my, went to parenting for the few instead right. for a time. So this coming to ALI, coming to Harvard, are we revisiting that idea or are we going on to something new and different? Well, I'm looking, I'm trying to discover, I'm trying to understand what has these three quarters meant? What do I have that's been deposited that I can give in this next phase? And so it probably will be related to men and boys. Can you summarize for us? What did you take from Q1, Q2, and Q3 so far? If you had to symbolize it, draw it, put a metaphor Uh, on each quarter, what would they be? On each quarter. I learned, I don't know that I can do it for each quarter. Let's just say accumulation. I've learned that African-American men and our culture, the American culture, is a wounded group of men who are in need of great support. And having walked through that as a single African-American father and said, I survived, I think I might have some words that I can inspire other men and other boys. And so I think that's what I've carried out of it. And, And you know, I'm looking at a project that looks at how do we save boys from preschool through their grandfather years and how do we inspire them? Because the number one death issue for African-American boys is homicide, and second is suicide. And then men 45 to 65 are committing suicide four times greater than that of African-American women. That's a problem. And I conclude we have to figure out how we create a movement that we eliminate that. So tell me, here we are in late May. We've just concluded the first semester of our Harvard ALI program. What impact has it had on you so far? And has it gifted you ideas for this journey? Aviva, as I've looked back, I'm amazed at the human resilience, at my ability to work through great deals, great spaces of pain and suffering, but yet be buoyed, be lifted, be inspired, to find the good, to find the goal, to say, what can I learn from this? And how can I move forward? You would guess, you would know that I've had many men who say, why are you parenting? Why don't you just leave those kids and do something else? The male culture, the father culture is really broken. Men, in some ways, are selfish about how they see their world. And so I get double takes, I get all kinds of questions. But what I've stepped back and said was, I'm reluctant to do this because it sounds self-serving. But I feel like I've learned a lot about how to do this work as a man and feel good about it. Women have done it for generations, for centuries, having five plates on a stick, but getting it done. And so I had to learn how to work, how to come home and cook, how to listen to homework how to figure out how each one of my children got to their sporting events, 
and I didn't lose my mind. And so looking back, men can learn if they want to, if they're open, if they have the heart to say, I'm going to lay aside traditional masculine thinking and feeling and believing so that I can learn how to grow and how to survive. And so those are things that I've just picked up and said, okay, how do I translate that now to other men? And so my sons are creating a blog for me so that I can use my blog to try to learn how to speak to the lowest levels of troubled African-American men. So Harvard, what's it done? Anything? Well, first I had to get over just the fact that I was at Harvard. (laughs) That was a big deal for me. Harvard is Harvard. What does it represent? It's the pillar. It's the Mm. top of the pillar. It's the high echelon. I think especially for marginalized people, most of my friends take great pride in saying, I know somebody who's at Harvard. My kids have just thought it was just marvelous. I've gotten over that to say, okay, now what can Harvard give me that I can use to help my community? And how can I learn from it? How can I use the brilliance of Harvard translated into words and language that average and below average people can understand? Any ideas? I'm learning. (laughs) I'm learning it. I think that's the place that places like Harvard have struggled to reach. Harvard talks intellectually to other intellectual people, but we have to figure out how to make lessons learned so simple that the almost illiterate can pick it up and understand it. And I think that's the greatest challenge we have is how do we take the knowledge? How do we take just the full essence of who we are and condense it down so that simple people can grab a hold of it and understand it? So you're trying to build another bridge, I hear. That's what I'm trying to build another bridge. Yes, you're good at metaphors. That's bridge builder. So what will be in your mind if you cast forward, we're going to have to leave this place one day, a successful Q3. You got another few years of Q3. (laughs) In six years, looking back at 75, what will have made this a wonderful end of quarter for you? That's really good. Let's say that I have a book that I have written to African-American men. I submitted it to 20 publishers in New York, and they all said African-American men don't read and they don't buy books. And so it gets back to my earlier statement. I have to figure out how I write a book that will excite men to pick it up and read it. And that's what I hope in these next few years. And that's what I'm hoping from my blog, that my blog will teach me how to take complex, cultural, even gender-related terms and reduce it to terms that men can hear, understand, and integrate so that they will buy it. If I can do that by 75, I think I will have had a third quarter well spent. Wonderful. We will revisit that a few years hence. Thank you. So my last question, I'm going to toss you further into the future and ask you, what's a successful Q4 look like to you? Are you thinking about that? Have you thought about it at all? No, I really haven't. I probably should, but Q3 has been busy enough just keeping up with my children and now coming here. I don't like the vision and the terms role model, but I hope there might be elements of that, that it could be said that here was a man who was non-traditional, 
who reached outside of his own culture, who didn't go by the book, who didn't go by rules, but learned how to live life in a full way, a full capacity to transcend race and transcend gender, transcend culture to reach his full potential. Bernard, I think you've already offered us a role so, model of a whole new kind of black fathering for all that speaks volumes. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey with us. Your time. Thank you for giving me this opportunity, Aviva. I really appreciate it. How can people reach you if they'd like to publish your book or read your blog? They can certainly go to the blog. It's bfranklinphd at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Talk to you towards the end of that Q3. I'll be back. Soon, right? (laughs) Thanks, Aviva. Thanks, Bernard. Bye-bye. Since we recorded this episode, an intense ALI module on society's mental health challenges and other research and conversations led Bernard to focus on alienation in the young Black community as an issue of mental well-being. He's now become MD of the Boston-based nonprofit Uncornered, which uses innovative ways to help young men engage in gang-related street violence to find ways out. The program puts a particular focus on their mental health and other support needs, and on the role of core influencers to support individual journeys on their journey from incarceration to contributing citizens 